David Oakes here with Trees A Crowd, and welcome to the Oliaceae. The Oliaceae is not a family named for my long-suffering editor, Ollie. Rather, the Oliaceae is a family famous for the olive tree, for fragrant jasmines, and for beautiful lilacs. But here, on the British Isles, it is also represented by two native tree species. The first of which is a legend of the British countryside, and the second... Well, we'll leave that till next week. This week's tree is tree number 51. The Mighty Ash, a tree whose scientific name sounds more like something He-Man would bellow than some Latin a botanist scholar would concoct. Yes, as our homoerotic friend from Eternia would say, this week's tree is Fraxinus Excelsior! <clears throat> Fraxinus Excelsior. Cue jingle. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. So, Ash, a great, great big tree. Its Latin-specific name, Excelsior, even means beyond lofty. It can grow to around 40 metres tall, and of all our native trees, ash trees have the largest crown size relative to their trunk. A tree with a trunk 60 centimetres in diameter could have a crown of 13 metres wide. That is 22 times the width. A crown fit for one of our mightiest, most regal trees, it seems. Ash trees have beautiful lime green serrated compound leaves, looking much like that of the rowan tree, hence why the rowan is often referred to as the mountain ash. But ash leaves can be as long as 30 or 40 centimetres, much longer than the rowan tree. And what is particularly cool about ash leaves is that they lean in the direction of sunlight. A whole canopy of ash foliage can be seen hunting out the sun's rays, much like the arboreal equivalent of a British tourist in Benidorm. And come winter, the ash is equally as impressive, showcasing winter buds that are an utterly distinctive velveteen jet black. And these black buds ultimately bring forth beautiful purple petalless flowers. Now, ash trees can produce separate male, female, and indeed hermaphrodite flowers, but also something called an inflorescence, which is basically a cluster of many flowers all arranged at the end of an additional stem. And come spring, well before the ash's leaves begin to unfurl, these flowers open and get on with their sexy wind-pollinated business, and it doesn't need much help there. For the ash tree is self-fertile. It can pollinate itself, and it produces hundreds upon hundreds of winged fruits that are clumped together in thick groups, like a massive ring of janitor's keys, leading to their common name, the nosy janitor's super-secret private door-opening seeds, or ash keys, if you prefer. One tree produces so many of these keys, in fact, that historically an absence of these seeds became folklorically important. A failed crop of ash keys was said to foretell an impending death in the royal family. For example, utterly reliable historical hearsay recounts that no single ash tree in the whole of England bore keys in 1648, and the following year, Charles I was executed. British monarchs beware a bald ash tree. 
Now, usually keys fall from the tree in winter and early spring and are then dispersed further with the assistance of birds and small mammals. These seeds then germinate very quickly indeed. You'll perhaps recall me saying as such in the episode on the sycamore, a tree that thankfully shares many characteristics with our ash. In fact, the ash reproduces so prolifically and plentifully that it has been viewed by some over the centuries as a weed. But it is these characteristics that, although annoying to some, help the ash to fill forest gaps, such as those created by the Great Storm of October 1987, or those left by the devilish Dutch elm disease in the 1970s, and even the clearings left by Neolithic man following their slash-and-burn practices of some 5,000 years ago. But all that could be about to change. Roughly 30 years ago, the fungus Hymenocyphus fraxineus, which is relatively harmless to its native hosts of the Manchurian and the Chinese ash, was introduced to Europe. It has since wiped out 60 to 80% of all European ash trees. Unfortunately, this fungus made its way to Britain in 2012 with similarly disastrous consequences. It is likely that it came over upon imported ash trees, but the spores of this fungus are also distributed by the wind, making it possible that the disease could have simply blown across. But what does this fungus do? Well, firstly, the fungus takes hold in the leaves of our ash. You'll notice dark patches on the otherwise lime green foliage. Then the fungus proceeds to grow deeper within the tree. Speaking from first-hand experience, one indicator of infection is that the higher twigs and branches become barer season by season, destroying much of the ash's airy, sun-seeking beauty. Over a number of years, the fungus slowly throttles the tree, restricting the tree's water supply, and eventually kills the tree outright. This is known as ash dieback. Very sadly for my family, ash dieback has currently taken hold in two once-mighty mature ash trees that border my garden. The worse off of the two barely has any leaf cover at all this year, and both now await the imminent arrival of a local tree surgeon. Hopefully he can arrive before a storm helps the rotten branches achieve independence and penetrate my loft space, or worse still, earn the ill trees one of their more macabre nicknames, the Widowmaker. At present, ash trees are the third most common tree in the British countryside. But as in mainland Europe, it is likely that ash dieback will kill around 80% of them. That said, there is some hope on the horizon. Some trees have proved resilient at fighting the disease. This tolerance depends upon a number of factors, including the tree's health and the amount of fungal spores in the localised atmosphere, as well as the tree's genetic makeup, something certainly not assisted by the ash's ability to self-fertilise. Some of our best and brightest, particularly those at the Future Forests Trust, Forest Research, Kew Gardens and Fira, are hard at work on an initiative called the Living Ash Project. Their hope is to locate disease-tolerant ash trees, work out how they're doing it, and then submit them to all kinds of experiments, such as grafting and planting them along with other ash trees in areas where ash dieback is particularly prevalent. Think of it like friendly tree eugenics. In fact, if you know of a disease-tolerant ash near you in a forest setting, head along to livingashproject.org.uk and help stop our native population of these incredible trees from being wiped out. 
That said, another threat to the ash tree exists in the United States, where the emerald ash borer beetle is ravaging their population. Each year, a female ash borer beetle lays roughly 80 eggs, the larvae from which feed on the tree's tissue causing massive damage. The beetles then overwinter in the tree's bark, emerge in May and then start all over again. Now, there has been biosecurity import controls in place on the British Isles since long before ash dieback, but dieback has certainly heightened our alertness. So hopefully, the lessons we have already learned will help in keeping the emerald ash borer at arm's length, at least for now. And whilst we're talking bark, the ash's pale browny-grey bark is smooth, fissuring just a little as it ages and supports a whole host of epiphytic mosses and lichens. Biodiversically speaking, owls, nuthatches and woodpeckers can be found nesting in ash branches, and the airy spring canopy provides the opportunity for wild garlic, dog's mercury, and a whole host of spring wildflowers to flourish in its dappled shade. Beautiful floral bounty to be nibbled endlessly by the mead-uddered viking goat, Hydran. Segway, segway, segway. The Vikings placed huge importance upon the ash tree. For one, the first male human, a guy called Asker, which is also the name for ash tree, was forged from ash wood. You can hear my reworking of that myth at the end of the episode on the witch elm, for the first woman, Embla, was carved from an elm tree. But even more significant than that is that the entire Viking universe was constructed upon, beneath and around, a giant magical ash tree and was nourished by the biodiversity that it supported. The ash tree in question is called Yggdrasil. The roots of Yggdrasil reach deep down within the underworld and are fed by three wells. The well of wisdom, the well of destiny, and the well of fire and boiling water, which also contains a root-gnawing serpentine dragon called Nidhugger. The cheeky squirrel, Ratatoska, scurries up and down Yggdrasil's slightly fissured trunk, delivering missives between the dragon and a canopy-bound eagle that just so happens to wear a hawk for a hat. Four deer eat the ash tree's fallen leaves, which fuel great rivers to flow from their antlers, which in turn refill the three wells beneath. And the aforementioned magical goat grazes upon the shaded grasses and wildflowers, dispersing mead from its udders to fortify the warriors of Odin's great table. Think of it all like an interpretation of Sylvanian families, if painted by Hieronymus Bosch, having seen Wagner's ring cycle on repeat for a month. But was Yggdrasil really an ash tree? We get the above foundation myth from a couple of sources, but the main one is the Icelandic Codex Regius, which dates back to around 1270 AD. This manuscript describes Yggdrasil as being wintergreen, but the ash tree is deciduous. It sheds its leaves when the colder weather arrives, although it does shed its leaves whilst they are still green. The manuscript also uses the Nordic word ask to describe Yggdrasil, which, yes, can mean ash tree, but it also means sharp and pointed. The Codex Regius rather seems to be referring to Yggdrasil as a winter green needle ash. This has led modern scholars increasingly to the belief that Yggdrasil was probably not an ash tree, but more likely the evergreen needly yew tree. 
In fact, the Viking's sacred tree at the Temple of Uppsala is believed to have almost certainly been an ancient yew. Indeed, the more you dig into Viking history, and for obvious reasons, that is something I've been doing quite a bit lately, the more you discover that the yew tree, rather than the ash, is the tree planted front and centre. But not only in Viking culture, rather in pretty much all human mythology. Our yew is a truly amazing species. See episode one. But this is not to diminish the ash's huge importance to the modern human. The wood of our ash is strong, flexible, shock-resistant, and until lately in plentiful supply. It is tough, with a beautiful grain making it wonderful for furniture. It was, and indeed still is, by Britain's Morgan Motor Company, used to make the chassis for motor cars. Plows were made from ash, tools were made from ash, society was built on ash. Tennis rackets, snooker cues and axe handles all benefit from the wood's shock-resistant properties, and the Irish sport of hurling is known as the clash of the ash, for hurley sticks are also traditionally made from ash for this same shock-resistant reason. In myth, Achilles wielded a spear made of ashwood, a gift from his deity mother, a spear so heavy that only Achilles had the skill to wield it, much to Hector's chagrin. And I have an umbrella stick made from ash root, bought to support me after my knee operation, resulting from an excess of gay theatrical galliards. Too much period dancing is a bad thing. But fortunately, the ash is seen as a good omen for most other ailments, at least as far as folk medicine is concerned. Needles dipped in ash sap could cure warts, nailing your hair to an ash tree would cure you of whooping cough, and wood chips of ash, when collected at the exact moment that the sun enters Taurus, could halt an insatiable nosebleed. Who knew? Apparently this worked for James II in 1688 when he arrived in my old hometown of Salisbury. But perhaps one of the most gruesome folk ash traditions is that of the shrew ash. A shrew ash was said to protect a dairy farmer's herd. But a shrew ash could be made in a number of different ways. One was simply to plant a lucky horseshoe beneath a young ash sapling. As it grew, the twigs of this shrew ash would have protective and curative properties towards your herd. Two, the glorious 18th century botanist slash ecologist slash parson Gilbert White, whose house and gardens are in Selborne and are well worth a visit, told of how a live shrew was once walled up inside a cavity in an ash tree to make the aforementioned protective tree. And thirdly, there are also tales of a rather disturbed farmer in Dorset who placed a whole aborted calf in the boughs of an ash tree with the hope of protecting the rest of his herd. But, to bring us full circle, I started this episode by saying how our ash resides in the same family as the olive tree, the Oliaceae. Olives, as you're no doubt aware, are famous for their oil. Olive oil is full of the fatty acid known as oleic acid. In fact, around 70% of olive oil is made up from the fats deriving from this particular acid. Now, these fats are not only good for lowering your cholesterol and your blood pressure, but they also burn incredibly well. For example, traditionally, olive oil was the only fuel permitted to be used in the Jewish menorah. But these fatty acids, as well as rooting the olive tree in human culture, are also present in the timber of the olive tree's cousin, our ash. Why do I mention this? Well, it means that like olive oil, ash wood 
is great for burning. It can even be burnt when green, by which I mean as soon as the tree has been cut. Most other woods, for example, need to be left to dry out or season in order to burn well. In actual fact, the ash is named for this. For the name of our ash tree's genus, Fraxinus, means firelight. Lady Celia Congreve, a nurse on the Western Front of World War I and wife and mother to two Victoria Cross recipients, wrote, in praise of all firewood and the ash tree's green burning wood above all else, the firewood poem. It was written around 1922, but found immortality when published in The Times in 1930. It is quite long and surprisingly informative, so for keen Boy Scouts or arsonists in training, I'll put a link to its entirety on the website. But to give you a theatrical taster, composed by my very good friend Gary Hickson and performed by him with Nicholas Sloan and Daniel Vildasola, here is another Trees A Crowd musical exclusive. So... Picture the scene. We're in the interwar years. Elgar's Nimrod is being played nearby by a colliery brass band, and a lone-aged firewood seller is pushing his barrow along an old cobbled street. Sadly, logs clatter to the floor as he bellows each wood's particular combustible properties. This man has logs to sell. This man has logs to burn. Logs to burn? Logs to burn? Lots of lovely logs to burn. Logs to burn, logs to burn, logs to save the coal at These hardwoods burn well and slow. Beech, hawthorn, oak, and holly. Softwoods flare up quick and fine. Birch, hazel, fir, larch, and pine. Elm and will you regret? Chestnut green and sycamore wet. Locks to
wood fires are bright and clear, keep the logs kept all year. But make a fire of elder tree, death within your house will be. A poplar gives a bit of smoke, fills your eyes and makes you choke. Applewood will set your room. Pearwood smells like flowers in bloom. Oh, oak and logs are dry and old, keep away, the winter's cold. Ash wet or ash dry, the king shall warm his slippers by. Logs to burn, 